creating something that's new, when you're really carving out a niche that doesn't exist, you're gonna get a lot more people that say you're crazy than not, right? If you don't, then your idea is not that new and innovative. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Lindsay Boyd, to our show today. Lindsay is the co-founder of The Laundress, a premium collection of eco-friendly laundry and home cleaning products. Before starting the company, Lindsay was working in high-end fashion in New York. While working in the industry, she noticed a real need and void in the market. Although consumers were willing to spend a lot of money on their clothes, they were spending even more money on dry cleaning, which was not only toxic, but also damaging to their luxury garments. After years of researching and understanding how detergents work, Lindsay and her college friend turned business partner, Gwen Whitting, decided to launch eco-friendly detergents that were gentle enough to be used at home on dry clean only items like cashmere and silk. They bootstrapped, crowdfunded before crowdfunding was even a thing and took a small SBA loan to launch their business. For years, the company struggled to make a profit, but they eventually grew a cult and loyal following and in 2019 sold to Unilever for a reported $100 million. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's such an honor to have you. And I have to give a shout out to my sister who actually introduced me to Laundress a few years ago when I was complaining about taking certain stuff to dry cleaning, but it's incredible. I'm able now to do it at home thanks to your how-to videos also on the site. But I'm excited that you're on. I've always had a fascination with the branding that you guys have done and really how you disrupted such an antiquated industry, you know, in the early days, especially not really having that background. So I'm excited to go through your story and have our listeners learn more about you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to start from the beginning. I know entrepreneurship runs in your blood. Your parents are entrepreneurs, your brother's an entrepreneur, but it's not something you necessarily knew you wanted to get into, especially when you were quite younger. Can you take us to the journey of what you thought you were going to be when you were younger and kind of how you pivoted into the world of fashion and entrepreneurship? As a little girl, I actually wanted to be a vet. Um, so I, I still have that same love for animals, but, um, I'm not, I, uh, I don't like blood very much. <laughs> same. So, so, um, but I do love, I did love science and I still do. And I think that's really relevant to where I ended up and also fashion. I, I had loved doing, um, design and, and, and sewing and, and really kind of that, that part of art. So I started out doing marine biology and then I realized it wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, I figured, okay, I need to think about how I can incorporate my love of science and, and um, what really, you know, as a freshman in college, you're, you're told right out of the gate, what do you, what do you want to do when you graduate? I mean, I don't know if it, the landscape's changed now, but I remember when, and when I was going to college, it was, you had to start thinking about that. Um, you started, you, you picked a major and you picked a minor and you kind of picked a path, if you will. Um, hopefully, I'm sure it's changed a little bit now. I but hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Hopefully it has. There's, you shouldn't have that much pressure. Um, but yeah, so I actually, my best friend growing up um, was at Cornell University and in the textile science program. And, and we had spoken quite a bit and she had come to visit me in school and, and, um, she said, you should, you would love this program. You should do this textile science program, which, um, was an emphasis on business and an emphasis on design in textiles. So I thought, okay, this is, this sounds perfect. So at that point I really kind of shifted my careers. I was also taking some night classes in, in fashion illustration. Um, again, just, just out of a, interest. Um, I'm kind of one of those people that likes to have a lot of different <laughs> hobbies and I like to learn, like I'm taking piano again. I oh, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so quarantine was actually okay for me in the sense of keeping busy because I have a lot of things that I, I like to do and try. And you can definitely see that throughout your entire life. You've always had your hands in different hobbies, even when you were younger. And honestly, that's how launches came about. But 
After graduating college, you had pretty coveted jobs in the fashion industry, which I know are not easy to come by. And you ultimately landed in Chanel's ready-to-wear department. So can you walk us through how you got that job and really your experience there? Because so much of that ended up taking you to starting your own business. Sure. Yeah. And actually, I had... Um... Let's see, I did a ton of internships in college, which I think really helped me ultimately building a resume when I graduated. Um, but I, prior to working at, prior to Chanel, I was at Brooks Brothers right out of college um, in men's tailored clothing. And so I did a little bit of, worked a lot with textiles, which was amazing. And then it was also sort of a buying aspect. So it was on the sales side. So I was working with the direct Brooks Brothers stores. And I, that's really what I love to do. I loved working with the brands versus on the buying side, which would be like Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus, that, that um, that avenue, you didn't deal a lot with product, and I love dealing with product. So, um, the, so the Chanel job, well, who doesn't want to work for Chanel if you're in fashion? <laughs> but, but actually, Women's Wear Daily, I read it religiously every single day, um, and, and there was an ad for a ready-to-wear uh, ready assistant position, and I just called and called and called. I'm very persistent. Um, <laughs> key theme for all entrepreneurs. Key theme, exactly. It may, it may come off as annoying, but yes. I'm just, you know, um, gently persistent. Uh, but yeah, so I, I called and um, sent in my resume and um, met with the HR woman and then went through several interviews and probably like a couple months later than I got the job. But I think it, that was just really kind of, timing, right? Because those jobs are very hard to find. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they still are because they're small departments. So a lot of there's not a lot of turnover there. Yeah, that is true. And I know you've talked a lot about how happy you were at Chanel and what an amazing experience it was for you. But you always had your hand in different things and side hustles. You had a hat box business at one point. <laughs> and then I think you were also selling a t-shirt brand that actually did pretty well, right? Yeah, we did. They were embellished with um, like studs and rhinestones and they were tie-dyed. Um, this was this was during that the, the big beginning of kind of the t-shirt craze. So people started spending a, like $100 plus on denim. They were spending more money also on t-shirts at the time. Um, so, and still are, right? That's still, we're still in that, in that space. And so the t-shirts, we took a little bit more seriously than my hat boxes because um, we did actually do production. We did sell to Saks Fifth Avenue, to Henry Bendel's, to a few other small um, boutiques and stores throughout New York City. And that was something that I really knew and understood. I understood fashion. I understood what consumers wanted. And um, my partner and, and friend at the time was was the same. She actually worked for PR. So she got she got a um, some PR spots for, you know, all free, all pro bono. Um, and yeah, that was, it was, we did a fat, we did a fashion show. We did a party launch. Um, we just tapped into all of our friends, which I think is really key in starting a business, like really being resourceful. I was very resourceful at a young age. I learned that in college, really. I think as a student in college, you learn to be resourceful, right? Because you don't have your mom or dad or the person helping or anyone really helping you or telling you, or if you didn't before, then you're better off, frankly, because you, you know, you really have to learn to think and you really have to learn to navigate how you can get what you need. Right. And that's sort of a life skill that has helped me, you know, still today with my children. So, um, that, that's something that I learned through the t-shirts, like just, hustling and, and tapping into people that you knew. So we would tap, we tapped into someone that's uncle owned a manufacturing facility. Perfect. He could fulfill the orders. You know, we tapped into, um, my friend, Jessica, she was in publishing. So, or she was, a uh, in PR. So she could manage that piece of it. And then we tapped into someone to help us with the accounting and financing. So it was, and it was all using friends. So it didn't cost very much. Um, you know, it takes more work and more time, but we even did that when we launched the laundress as well. Um, yeah. 
And I'm so glad you're talking about this because I feel like, you know, some of the women I've had on my podcast in retrospect say, you know, one thing I wish I did was ask more. And I love, and I'm very similar to you, you know, I, especially when you're starting a business, you don't have a lot of resources. You're trying to be very frugal with like every little dollar you have. Yeah. And you know, whether it's reaching out to someone on social media who you might not know or LinkedIn or your mom's friend, you know, people are surprisingly willing to help. And mm-hmm. I can't wait to even jump into Laundress because like you said, it's a theme that you've kind of seen, you know, launching your next business. So I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing that up because I think it's a tool that anyone, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what background you have, can mm-hmm. definitely tap into. And, you know, I'm curious. So you were saying you got into Saks and all these great retail stores. So what was it about the t-shirt line that didn't really, you know, take you to the next step of that being kind of your business you've always dreamed of? Yeah, you know, and I've been asked this before. I um I really and I thought I keep thinking about it because I don't I don't really know why we didn't continue because it was successful and we could have easily had an you know uh found gotten funding and and that we had we had purchase orders to show the success. Um I just I really believe I'm really a believer personally of timing and I really think it was a timing issue. I just don't think that I was personally ready to be in that place. Um, I needed more experience. And I do believe if if you can get experience, if you can work for someone for free in an industry you want to be in, do it. You know, I mean, it may mean you work after your day job, you know, or it may mean you skip a holiday or whatever it is. But I think those are, you know, it's like continuing education, if you will, like on if it's something that you're passionate about, like just really I think there was a lot of learnings that I took away from Jessica Lindsay t-shirt brand that helped me ultimately um, have the confidence to take the next step. And I think it's okay to have these little side things and they don't, they don't materialize to anything. I think there's learnings in everything that we do. So I could not agree more. I think, you know, sometimes we can get caught up on seeing accolades from successful entrepreneurs. And if you really dig into their details, and I've been doing that, you know, even for this podcast, their biggest success was never their first business. So even, you know, looking at your life, having those at bats, that that's what I like to call them, and really understanding how to start a business, making mistakes, learning, all that will transpire into, you know, your next business that will only be more successful because of everything that you learn. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. And also talking about confidence, that is also so key. And you get more confident with every quote unquote fail or try that you do. So I've definitely seen that in my life. I came from a very corporate background, but always had an interest since I was a kid to have my own business. And I jumped into the startup world after doing six years of investment banking and finance. And it really opened up not only my mind, but also helped me build that confidence that I could run a business. I could start something from scratch because I was surrounding myself around that. And it really built that confidence for me to take that leap. I think the confidence thing comes too with just like a real passion and real, um, like you really have to want it, you know? And then you're just, then you're kind of like, you know, people are going to look at you like crazy and try to, you know, break down that confidence, but it's, it's impossible to do if you really believe in it. And you're talking from firsthand experience because I know with the laundress, when you guys had launched, it was such a new concept and idea in the world of detergent. So I can't wait to dig deeper in that in a bit. So going back to your entrepreneurial interest, I know you and your friend, who's now your co-founder, Gwen, wanted to start a business together. How did you guys think about the different ideas that you had and ultimately come across the concept for the laundress? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners today might be wanting to do their own thing, but aren't really sure how best to approach the next step or that idea. So I'd love to hear more about how you guys came across it. Yeah, I think you you start once you start putting a pen to paper and you realize, oh, maybe that's not the best idea, or maybe I can't really, maybe this isn't for me, or this isn't my skill set. So yeah, absolutely. We had a lot of, um, Gwen, I, we, Gwen and I met in college, so we were college friends, and actually through my best friend growing up, that's how we got introduced. Um, and we both had that sort of, um, you know, real drive to do something on our own, even at a, you know, even before we got out of college, like we always kind of talked about it and thought about it. And 
right out of college, we knew we needed our own, needed real, real work experience. Yeah. Um, I laugh now because, you know, what I did was real work, but, but, um, but really structure, we needed that understand how the corporate environment or any environment, like how a work environment works, what are they, what's it look like? Um, and we talked about doing a couple of different things. We had a clothing design idea, um, a brand, a clothing brand idea. We had a makeup idea and, um, we actually went as far as even going to uh, manufacturers to to make the makeup for us. So we, we we really explored these other ideas as thoroughly as we could until we got to the point where we were like, there's got to be something. We don't even really wear makeup. So that's what was kind of funny. It was more about a, it was a conceptual idea that was really neat. And we felt that people would buy into it and it made sense for our lifestyle. And I think, Ultimately, these ideas that we had were something that we needed. Um, and then further took it even further to say, okay, do other people need this? And, and does it exist? You know, the first thing you got to ask is, does this exist? And it's okay if it exists, actually, because you can do it better, you know, or you can do it differently. Like, and I think that's one of the things when, that, I, that I learned along that the laundress journey was like, we were worried about people copying us. And, and, I, and I was like, There's, people can't copy us because it's our idea. It's authentically our idea. People can make a product, of course. Someone else can make a detergent and there's, you know, but it's not, it'll never be, our idea will never be their idea, period. It doesn't work. It's not that simple, you know? It looks like that from the outside, but it's not. Um, so I think those were kind of things that we, it was very important that we, did something that we both wanted, that we both used, and really could get behind as as consumers. Yeah, and I know at that time you both were in high-end fashion and you had some issues with always taking your clothes to the dry cleaning. So what was the impetus for both of you to come up with the idea of laundress specifically? Yeah, so we, well, a couple different things transpired because I was dry cleaning a ton of stuff at Ch- for my Chanel wardrobe that I was buying at sample sales and spending more money at the dry cleaner than I was uh, ultimately on the item itself, which was crazy. Yeah. And a lot of and, people still do that. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and we're trying to get them not to, right? Or educate them how they can do it themselves. So um, I was hand washing with baby shampoo, things in my, my sink, like my everything from lingerie to a Chanel jacket, like things that, because I, the dry, I knew that the dry cleaner wasn't necessary based on my textile experience. And, um, and Gwen was lugging her laundry to her parents' house in New Jersey because there was, there wasn't a place to take care of your laundry or there were, but they didn't do a great job. And you weren't really sure if your stuff, where your stuff was going or how it was being treated. And, we knew we thought okay there's only woolites out there like a woolite type product out there there's only this kind of big box detergent one size fits all there's got to be something that we can that we can make and you know that's better um and gwen had just gotten back from london and they had like these beautiful they have they still do and and we have more of them now but more bespoke laundry dry cleaning experiences so your things come back smelling nicer than they do from the dry cleaner from a typical dry cleaner but it's still not the same right it's still not like having this amazing product doing it yourself um and we both came from families that like you know, from Midwest families where um, you keep things in your life for a long time. So quilts and things that were meaningful and you cared for them properly. You washed them. You didn't dry clean them. Like I think about my grandmother dry cleaning anything like that never happened. She hand washed things or, you know, and then they properly stored them in tissue, you know, or whatever the, the, the situation was. But so for us, it was kind of, it was bringing back that lost art and we, again, a need we had, and it was, it was becoming very obvious to me too, working with consumers or, you know, Chanel customers and working with my team at Chanel where people weren't dry, they weren't buying something. They weren't buying something because they didn't want the dry cleaner to ruin it. And I'm like, that's crazy. 
Like, don't take it to the dry cleaner. You know, that's what in my head, but I didn't have a way, I didn't have anything to tell them to do it with. I would be comfortable doing it on my own, but I don't, I can't tell my customer that, you know? Yeah. And I didn't even know that until, you know, you guys do such a good job with education, but I still think there's still an untapped market of people who aren't educated in this. So I'm so glad you're talking about it. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. It's not that people don't want to do it and it's not that they don't want a better way. It's just like anything else, like clean, better cleaning products, better food for you. People want to know. It's just not knowing where to start or, um, not understanding, you know, the education isn't there. And I, and that's really what we've done so well, I think is, is being able to communicate on a level where people can understand it from videos, from how to's, how to kind of, we call them recipes, but there are how to start to finish on how to get a stain out, how to wash a cashmere sweater, how to care for silk and things that I, I get people stopping me sometimes. It's very funny. Um, like I had this, I guess it was about a decade ago. I was at a wedding for a friend and the, one of my other like college friends had brought a date and she was like, I know you. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> She's like, I have you. I pull you up your video on how to wash a cashmere sweater. Every time I'm washing a sweater, I thought that was so funny. I'm like, oh my gosh, that is yeah. amazing. So the, you know, those are things I think we've given that resource to, to our customers and to our community that, um, a lot of brands in our space have not done. I, I definitely agree. You guys do a great job with that piece. And I know if I read this correctly, when you guys were, you know, really fleshing out the idea, you were, I guess you worked off like a frozen fish sticks company to help you put together your business plan. So I'm very curious about that. Can you share more? Um, it was, it was a, a business plan, just like a basic business plan platform. So I, like, um, a template. So it had all of the essential questions that needed to be asked. And I think it's very helpful to have a template to look at someone else's business plan. Actually, if you have a friend that you can look at um, their plan, just because it, because it gets you to think and ask the right questions, I think. And some of those questions were hard for us to answer. Um, You know, like specifically the, the marketing aspect, you know, at first, because we had, we were like, oh, we're just going to go to all these stores. But then how are we going to reach globally? How are we getting there globally? You know, because we wanted to be a global brand. It was very important to us. And, um, and so those were things that we had to really sit down and be like, okay, how do we do this? Because we don't know anything about the Asian market at the time. Now we know so much about it. But those were things that got us to think and how we were going to like really scale the business and a very, very in the infancy stages of it. So like we're talking, you know, 18 years ago. So I love that. And I think that's so important when you're starting a business is allowing yourself not only to think through every aspect of the business, you know, whether you're finding a business plan template online, like you recommended, or talking to a friend who might have done it, but really thinking through everything and also thinking big, right? Like you guys are now global, but I'm sure initially starting out, you were just even thinking how to even get the first product out. And I feel like a lot of people you know, might feel intimidated on thinking at a bigger scale, but it's incredibly important to be clear about your mission and having that intention because looking at what you've accomplished, you guys definitely have created that. Yeah. And I think it is scary, right? It is scary to think about things that are so, you know, in present day, like feel very in the future or not even attainable or even reachable, frankly. And I think it's okay to have what I think is really helpful is you start out where you can, where you know you can tackle and get into right away, right? So I knew the U.S. market. I knew the, I knew New York. I knew like I knew the U.S. market, and I and I knew I knew how to sell something. So that's where we started first, mm-hmm. um, and we actually wanted to do a service. But the two of us were like, service. We know nothing about service. It was actually laughable that we were going to do a service, frankly, <laughs> because I, I mean what were we, what experience do we have in that? Right. And, um, we love the idea of having the service to use, but, but but how could we be this authority in this space when we don't really know anything about it? Um, we did end up launching a little service on the side, which actually we still grandfather those customers because, um, they love it so much, but we never, we ended up, you know, obviously, as you know, product was more of, was something we were more familiar with, but I think that 
my point is, is that go with what you know immediately out of the gate and then write these crazy things down. Like I want to be the brand of Tokyo or whatever it is, or I want to be, you know, think bigger than what's in front of you. And even if it never happens, it's okay, but it's always good to, to, to get those ideas down and those dreams and those goals. And you never know who you're going to run into and you're going to have that idea in your pocket, you know, and you're like, Oh wait, that's what I want to do. Not now, but in phase two, phase three, it's okay to have phases. You know, you can't do everything. You can't do everything in the beginning. And we still can't do everything now just so everyone knows, even after being acquired, you still have to look at what's the plan, what's the goal for 2020, what's the goal for 2021, what are we, you know, what is our focus, like is it retail, is it, you still have to have those, ask those questions, so it's just, it's good to know that the idea is there and you, you can explore it, doesn't have to be done that instance though. <laughs> and I'm so glad you brought that up because it is all about phases. And it's also interesting to hear, even at your scale, being you know a multi-million dollar company that's under the brand of Unilever, you still think that way. Yeah. And I think you know starting any business or managing a business, it's really taking one step at a time, right? It's like building a house, one brick exactly. at a time, <laughs> and not really getting overwhelmed by everything and wanting to do everything all at once. So I'm so glad you brought that up. So talking about taking the first steps, I've always been really curious, how did you guys even begin formulating the product? Because both your backgrounds, you and your co-founders weren't necessarily in this space. And, you know, a product that I'm launching hopefully early next year, it's a superfood to balance women's hormones and just formulating that and getting the right experts behind it was quite the journey and learning experience for me. So I'd love to hear the process of how you guys came about building the product and really where you started from. Yeah, well, we did not make anything in our bathroom. Um, we weren't chemists in the bathroom blowing up. <laughs> yeah, you you hear that story though. It's like, oh, I was playing around in my kitchen. Yeah, I know. I've been food quite a bit, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but I, I know that does happen, and I'm sure it still is going on, which is awesome, actually. Um, but we went to a trade show um, for contract manufacturing and found a manufacturer that way. And contract manufacturing is basically, um, they, they exist in every business, really. And they, they make products for other people. Some people do white label. And what white label is, is basically an existing, I'll just use, my, I'll use laundry as an example. So it's, it's an existing detergent where you just slap your label on. We didn't do that. We wanted to create our own formula. We, we went back to college and did this kind of, we call it a crash course in detergency and um, really learned the molecular structures of like what, what learned what happens to um, fiber when it touches bleach or learn what happens to things when petroleum interacts with um, different fabrics and really got the chance to understand that the best products were green plant-based um, enzymes were really what got rid of all the stains and were the workhorse of the product. And so understanding the, in, understanding the product category in which we were going into, I think was really, really critical. And that way we could go to a manufacturer and tell them, okay, this is what we like. And this is what we don't like. Now they came up with the percentages and the formulas and the actual recipe, if you will, because we're not chemists. So we have to make sure that everything is stabilized and everything is balanced and um, so that's how we that's how we started, and um, we still work with a lot of those manufacturers today. And it's a great way to. I mean, I really don't know any other way, frankly. Um, there are manufacturers that are really big that require huge minimums, and there are manufacturers that will believe in your business and do something small, smaller run. And and that's what we we were lucky that happened for us and we had to pay maybe a little more than we normally would but we were able to take on inventory that we could manage and i think that's important for like a business where you're selling a product in the beginning to know it exists too i think is important like cuz people again will say you know you'll call 100 manufacturers maybe majority of them have these crazy runs you don't have the money to pay for that inventory up front but like you said there are some smaller ones that are willing to work with you. And I'm sure you being yeah. graciously persistent as you are, that's how you really found someone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
And so as you guys were, you know, really formulating this, you found a contract manufacturer. I believe both you and Gwen were still working full-time jobs um, at that point. So how are you guys, you know, what was your day structured like? And how are you guys funding the business in the early stages? Yeah, so we we were moonlighting um, during our keeping our day jobs. Uh, eventually we we each left, but um, how are we funding? So initially we did a couple different things. Well, we had, we had really good credit. Um, so we used credit cards, um, a lot of credit cards to, to start our, to use things like uh, paying for just office space and things that, you know, supplies and like, obviously we couldn't pay employees on a credit card. Um, but then we did something pre crowdfunding. We had a, a soap splash party where we invited everyone that we knew and, um, we served our idea and served wine. We said we're, and, um, we got a friend of ours, actually my best friend's cousin gave us his restaurant and we, he opened up for us after, um, I guess he was closed one of the days during the week and he allowed us to have it for a few hours. We had a friend at the door collecting donations. Like it was, basically, you could give $5 or some people gave a thousand, some people gave more, you know? Um, but we invited everyone like friends and families, ex-boyfriends, moms, dads. I mean, everybody that we knew that would come and then, and that really believed in us and, 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 um, those people are still all in our lives in some way, shape or form. And, it's really cool. It's really neat to think that, you know, that's why I, th- I, I get why people don't ask because ask for help, but it's so amazing how much people want to help. And I think that's, um, yeah. And for, for some reason, women don't want to ask for help. I think I, I ask too much, but, <laughs> but, I, but I think I learned that, you know, that was like an acquired thing that I just, it, it, you, once you start asking, it's working and you're like, well, I'm just going to keep asking. And it's like the saying, there's no dumb question, you know, like there really isn't, you can't. So someone says no, then, then no problem, you know? And, and I always usually lead with, it's okay. If you say, you know, if the answer's no, or it's okay. If like, you can't do this, no problem. Um, but yeah, that's, we, so the, we did creative, creative funding, creative financing. Um, we were able to, raise enough money. And then we, then we ultimately got an SBA loan for a hundred thousand dollars, which was incredible. Um, we worked for every dollar of that, getting that it was very hard, a lot of work doing the num like financials for Gwen and I, because we didn't have a tremendous amount of experience in doing that. Um, but we did tap into friends to help do our executive summary and get all of that, you know, people that were in finance and in banking that, that had more experience again, that wasn't our forte. Um, I will say one thing is that if you, if you're not great at sort of the, the back end accounting piece of it, definitely get someone to help you get your books in order and stay organized there. Um, because we did, we were a little messy in the beginning and then we had, then we had to backpedal and it cost a lot of money for us. And, um, a lot of time, but it wasn't met. And I say messy in the way we just weren't organized. We just did know what we didn't know. And we, and we also didn't place value in spending time on it. We placed value in spending time on the product and selling it. So it was like a good mess. It wasn't a, (laughs) yeah, we actually hear that quite a lot with the women on our podcast. They always, always say early on, when you start the business, be very clear with your finances, keep the books clean. Don't mix your personal finances with your business finances and staying organized. Mm So I'm glad you also brought that up because I think it's something that, you know, a lot of people aren't doing and you're starting these businesses and I'm sure it takes so much time to go back, clean everything and it also is expensive. So talking about your financials, I know you both actually ended up getting an SBA loan very early on in your business that helped you quite a bit, but you had to personally guarantee it. So what did that feel like as, you know, two women working in fashion, you said you weren't making that much money to put everything on the line for this idea that you had for Laundress? Yes. At the time we still had our job and um, so we were showing income, but we also had 401ks that were really critical in helping us get that. That was a real asset for us. Um, so we use that as leverage as part of, you know, personally guaranteeing. 
that was really the biggest piece of it, honestly. Um, and we had really outstanding credit, which was something that our parents told us we had to have. Obviously, I also used, I did use my Chanel pieces as assets. And um, Oh, you did? That's interesting that they took that. Yeah, because it has value. And, um, and, and my car, my car. Yeah, whatever <laughs> um, it'll take. Whatever, you know, and it, it was, it's funny because you learn, I would have never thought that that would even be considered or something that they would even want to see, but it was considered an asset on the, so. That's great. That's definitely something that I didn't know that they could take your Chanel bags, but I'm sure people listening right now might be thinking, my gosh, she put so much on the line, all of her assets at such a young age, and it seems like such a risky move. But one thing that you've mentioned in previous interviews that it was a very calculated risk. So can you share with our listeners what you mean by that? So when I said calculated risk, of course it was risky. You know, I was leaving a job and I, but we spent a lot of time thinking about it. We asked all those important questions. We had a business plan. I think a business plan is really important and you don't need to use a fish stick plan, but I'm sure you can even right now go on, you know, go on Google and find a business plan template to use. And I really encourage that. Just put pen to paper and start writing down your ideas. And it doesn't even have to be in order. So when we say that, it was more that we thought about it. We thought about it. And also I, I always, the planner that I am, I made sure that I was relevant in the industry that I was currently in. So in case something didn't, something went south with the laundress, I could get a job pretty easily, which I think is really important too, to stay connected with those resources. Um, If I had amazing mentors, I have still do who I'm still very close with um, from Chanel and I always kind of, and, and I could say this to her, I'd be like, so I have a job with you if I need one, right? Like, so, you know, those, and she's like, absolutely. You say that, you know, say that, say it whenever. And so, and, and Gwen did the same, you know, like it was, I was more forward and probably more of a planner in that regard. But that was, I think those are, that's important to keep in mind. Um, you don't want to close the door basically because you never know when you're going to have to go back or when you're, will need them. And frankly, and, and I did, I used all of my contacts at Neiman Marcus that we were in Bergdorf Goodman was one of our first clients. Um, and that's because of the relationships that I established at Chanel and at Brooks Brothers. Yeah. And it definitely feels less risky when you have thought about plan, you know, B and C, and you kind of know your options if, you know, worst case scenario, the project or business that you're working on doesn't work out. And it's great that you utilize those relationships to really get your product in retailers. But I'm curious, you know, that must have not been easy because Numa Marcus, Bergdorf Goodman, these high-end retailers were never selling laundry detergent. That was unheard of before you guys came into the picture. So do you have any certain stories or instances of key rejections you faced when you were trying to get your product out there? Uh, yeah, I mean, lots of, lots of rejections. I mean, but I remember, I mean, I call, I did cold calls, like for a lot of the stores that we were in and I would call and send samples and they'd be like, what I'm not washing my cashmere. What it was not only it was not only the price that was a barrier to entry. It was also the idea, you know. And then they were like, "You're I'm not washing cashmere. I can, you can't you can't wash cashmere." I'm like, "Okay, well, I just did." So that's when the the video part of it became in the demonstrations. I would actually go to the stores and demonstrate in person, and that's the way that we would sell in the beginning. Um, I even went and I, and I went to a store in New York and actually sold the product in his store because he wouldn't buy it. And I, I knew he would, I knew he had the customer for it and I knew he would sell it. So I went on the, I went and sold it myself and sure enough, he was a client. So I think, yeah, there's a, there's always going to be, you can't be, something for everyone. There's not, you know, there's no way to satisfy everybody. Um, and in the, and when you're creating something that's new, when you're really carving out a niche that doesn't exist, you're going to get a lot more people that say you're crazy than not. Right. Um, because if, because if, if you don't, then your idea is not that new and innovative. Right. And, um, and that's what we were up against a lot. People were like, I could just use any old product. I don't, that doesn't make any sense, but we found what 
So during this whole process, and really we learned a lot that a lot of people cared about things that were non-toxic, even early on. Um, and also they hated the dry cleaner. Like everyone has a bad dry cleaning story. So those were trigger points. And like for people that I, that we really hung our hat on because that's what we were doing. I mean, that's why we had the product to not dry clean anymore. And it seemed so normal to us, but then, but then we wouldn't speak to the product in that way. We were talking about how it was this detergent to wash everything with, but then it turned materialized. The dry cleaning piece was very, very important to customers. So, yeah. And I'm sure also you really understanding that the product worked and it was something that you wanted in your own life. I'm sure that also gave you the confidence to, you know, cold call these stores, get in front of them to show them how it worked and even deal with the skeptics. I washed my own things. I washed my, I, I demoed everything. I washed a Chanel shearling bag. I washed my own, one of the first videos is washing a Chanel jacket. And, th and these things were all Chanel because I was working at Chanel, not because that was, trust me, my wardrobe did not exist only <laughs> Chanel. I was a huge Zara, Zara client. In fact, Karl Lagerfeld liked my Zara pants with a jacket so well that- Really? That it <laughs> oh, I love that. I taken back into the design room for a, little, for, um, a Zara pant review. I, it was hilarious. I'm like, these pants? are making a big deal. <laughs> I love that. Gosh, I'm a big fan of Zara. I always have been. So that story yeah. for me is incredible. Yeah. And one thing I actually want to bring up is the importance of timeline. And I know you've also talked about this in the past. So with Laundress, you know, the first two years, you were really figuring out what the business was, doing a lot of R&D on the product, figuring out your contract manufacturing, and really putting in that work. So how did you think about the timeline of your business? And can you talk to us about why QVC was such an important factor in that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So timeline, that's really hard to do, right? Because that's when it's final, right? So, um, and you can continue forever and never launch a brand, <laughs> a business. And, and it, it's, it's very normal. It's, it's, it's just how we are. Um, and so we had this opportunity to be in QVC we went and pitched to them and that was our way to finally say, okay, get the manufacturer in line, get production ready to go. This is the formula. This is the label because we had to do all of the label copy, label design, all of that. Um, and that was a way that we were, that was, we had to stop at that point when we were going to pitch to QVC because we knew that if we got into QVC, all systems ago. So, um, well, we never got into QVC at that point. We did go to QVC maybe f about five years later, um, and we didn't do very well. <laughs> we were too eco, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so I think, I don't, again, I don't know the landscape of QVC, full disclosure, right now, today, but, but in early on when we were starting, um, it was more about how can we get that stain stick and have magic appear and we use water and we have a method. So we're, I'm pretty sure that that was just not what the customers wanted. We sold some, but we basically bombed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure even going on QVC was such an important experience for you. And clearly you learned that that wasn't a the right avenue for you guys to sell your product. But what I think is so important for anyone listening today is the importance of having a timeline, right? Like you can sit there, think through your product, the branding, the marketing, what you're trying to sell for years and you not get anywhere. So I think really setting those goals. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, exactly. It does not have to be perfect. Progress over perfection always. So I totally agree with you on that. So switching topics, I know the first three years of your business, you guys were losing money and you weren't profitable. And finally, by year four, you guys turned a profit. And that was during the 2008-2009 financial crisis. How did you weather such a difficult time while also bringing the business to profitability? Because that's tough to do in such a difficult environment. So that was a crazy time, but I think what kept us afloat and kept us going is that we were so diversified. Um, you know, people speak a lot about diversified portfolios, diversified portfolios in business, and and um, 
that's what we were as a brand. We were international. We sold direct to consumer and we also had wholesale. So that enabled us if one was not doing as well, we could put our effort in another area. So different, I always say we're like, a, we were like an octopus because we had many, many different arms and different things. And um, that allowed us to stay afloat. So we really leaned on our international clients during that time. Um, a lot of our US stores were closing. We stopped going to trade shows, which was a big deal for us because that's where we got new business. That's where we found new boutiques and new stores. So that was really a shift for us and kind of scary. Um, but no one was, no new people were there. All people that we were already sold to, all these different stores and boutiques in the US. Um, and so we, we started adding additional distributors, international distributors in different markets. Um, so we, that's when we were heavily, we started focusing a lot on Asia. Um, we have a really great business in Korea and in Japan. Um, and we have different distributors that we still work with today that are there. And, um, and then in, your, in, in the EU um, and UK. So those were areas that we just, we relied heavily on. And then in the US, obviously we didn't wanna turn our back to that. What we did was we supported, we looked at our top 20 to 30 clients and we budgeted accordingly to support those customers that were doing really well with our brand. And we offered them different incentives. Like we gave them better, some of them we gave them better terms. Some of them we gave them free samples. Some of them we did events with to really drum up interest and, and keep that momentum going. We didn't want to be a product that didn't sell anymore. We saw that happening. And um, so we thought, okay, let's, there are these smaller guys and they just can't take our inventory because they're just not in business like they were. And we understood that. And so we looked at the, the, the stronger stores that were doing well and then could, could help support us as well. Um, so like Container Store, for instance, great partner for us and, and still is. Um, we were able to do events in the store and things like that. So really being creative and pivoting and, and just like how we did during quarantine. It's the same during COVID. Like we had to become you know, roll our sleeves up and get creative. And how are we going to reach these customers? Our stores closed, you know, like our, our retail clients that we love so much, like how are we going to make them feel still part of our community and we can service them differently. And, and that's something that we've been able to do um, from the very beginning. And I think as a, I think that's what's really unique from us, from bigger corporations is that, or I just, not us, but um, small businesses and entrepreneurs is that we are not scared to pivot. Um, and we have, and our whole team gets it. They're trained that way. I don't even think they know how not to, frankly, <laughs> um, because they're so used to thinking about, okay, well, uh, if there, there's being solution oriented, coming up with solutions rather than being stuck. And that's, um, that's what we did in, in 2008, 2009, um, and leaning on things that are working and, and coming up with solutions for things that weren't. That's huge. I think, like you said, you know, being a founder or even a leader, you might not even have your own company. It's just being solution oriented and, you know, yeah. find being creative, which you guys have done now twice with quarantine, you know, COVID and in 2008, 2009 with the financial crisis. You know, we get a lot of questions where people ask, you know, when you're going through these really tough times, like how do you manage your mental health? Do you have any rituals or habits? Because there's so much to stomach as a leader and entrepreneur when you're navigating a ship for your company and employees. How do you deal with that? I have to reset my new normal balance quite a bit. Um, I have two children too. <laughs> so that that's a boomerang in itself. Um, but yeah, I... I exercise. I have always exercised and I do different things from dance, cardio, yoga. Um, and that's something that I do really early in the morning before anyone gets up. Um, but frankly, if you're working from home, you could set an hour aside at any point and do it for yourself. I think that's been really helpful. And I also do meditation as well. Um, and I started practicing meditation about two and a half, three years ago. 
And um, that's been able to get me to really think clearly. I get overwhelmed with my own ideas and things I want to do. And this allows me to take a step back. And again, we were talking about phases earlier. I think that allows me to do phases for my life, you know, because we all have things in our personal lives that really affect our professional lives. Um, and I think that allows you to breathe for a second and think clearly on what the priority is for that day. Uh, and that's been like tremendous for me. It doesn't have to be some crazy thing either. I think you just, it's just a time where you're alone, where you have time for you to think about things other than other people or, um, which I know women do all the time. We're always thinking about other people. <laughs> um, other people are, um, you know, your work, your career, just, just time to just kind of let yourself worry about nothing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, carving that time to really disconnect and take yourself out of the day to day. So whether it's meditating, moving your body, exercising, spending time with your family, I mean, whatever works to get you in that state. So it definitely makes sense. So going back to Laundress, you guys started in 2002 and you ultimately sold the business 17 years later in 2019 to Unilever for a reported $100 million. Did you always anticipate that you were going to sell the business? And what did that selling process look like for you? So yes, we always wanted to find a strategic buyer. Um, we thought it would happen five years into the business. Did you? Hilarious. Yeah. Because there's no way. <laughs> But we were ambitious, so, but yes, it was always part of the plan. And I think that's also why we were so adamant about a business plan is that we knew that if we were gonna make this work, we had to think of everything and think of what other people would want us to think about too. We got to a point where, so we were self-funded, 50-50 um, ownership. We never took outside capital. We had loans from banks and we got, you know, we had really nice banking relationships um, along the way, which was amazing, amazing. Um, and that was based on, you know, success of, from our sales and revenue and, and clients that we had. And so we were able to get more and more loans, increasing our loans every year. And then eventually we got to a point where we thought, okay, and it was about, I guess, 15 years into it probably. And, um, well, four, yeah, 14, 15 years. Uh, we thought, you know, in order for us to take it to the next level, we really need a lot of capital. We can't recycle like all of our profits were going back into the business, that kind of, it, and the loans weren't going to take us to scalability that we felt we needed to hit. Mm -hmm. So we started exploring um, VCs, we explored, and we kind of started that process and, and we still couldn't make sense of it. We weren't gonna get enough money to take us to where we needed to be. And then when we were, sometimes when we were presented with that, with that, whatever the lump sum was, we were like, well, what are we doing with that? And so there were all these like dialogues happening um, to the point where right before we sold for Unilever was pro to Unilever was probably like an, a year and a half before um, we really said, okay, we've got to go to market and find a strategic buyer. Like we're the, the VC route. It doesn't make sense. We think we can, you know, we're at that number that sweet spot where we think we can sell to a strategic and it just turns out that they knew that too because they started reaching out to us before we even reached out oh to them. wow really oh. so, and the, the timing seemed great you guys didn't use an investment bank or anything they reached out yeah wow yeah. it happened maybe a little earlier than we wanted it to but it was really within the time zone so the time frame it was it was very good. It took us a long time to get the deal done. Yeah. Um, but I guess they all take a long time. I don't know. Apparently everyone walks through it. Yeah. Like the due diligence process right. of selling, like you don't even know if it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And actually the due diligence process, you definitely need someone. We were very lucky to have, we call her the third partner, um, our CEO who helped us with the whole process because she was really the the finance behind um, everything that we did. And so she knew the business inside and out and she worked with the bankers directly, thank God, because I don't, that could have really been the, the death of our company, <laughs> like having Gwen and I involved into that capacity. It's a, it's a lot of work. You definitely need a team in place. 
Mm -hmm. um, for anyone that's going thinking about doing it, you need people to help you. You cannot manage that on as a as a founder. It's you you know I'm sure you know the process. Um, yeah, it's very detailed. It's not, involved. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's not enough time for you to be a founder and to do everything but oh that's for sure i definitely believe that so looking back at your career are there any key lessons or advice that you can share with our listeners today who are you know looking to start a company get a brand off the ground or even pivot in their own careers you know i've i've i have a lot of friends that have started businesses and i've helped them and and um i think one of the one of the key things that I find that, 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 that they come up against is that they just don't know how to navigate a certain sector to get what they need. Right. So that's when you really have to start making, a, we always made lists of people and how they could, and how they might be able to help us. Like our, we always had a money list who could give us money list, <laughs> but, or who could we, you know, who could we have a conversation with about our idea? You know, that was a list we had and then we wanted to go global and like we would think of brands that were global that we liked and how, who, who were they using? They had to be using someone, you know, and, and I, I hearing my friends that are starting it um, and knowing what I know now, I, I, they're tapping into me as that resource resource because I have a lot of different experience, but I think if you don't have a me in your life, you start, you have someone that could help you get the answer, right? So if you're looking for a manufacturer, um, for instance, someone's asking me about a manufacturer for a clothing line, like you can start thinking about those people that you know that that have a clothing line and do it already. It might not be exactly what you want to do, but I'm sure they'll be willing to help you navigate that but that seems to be something that i people get stuck you get stuck you get stuck at something that you don't know and there's a lot of things we don't know right i we didn't know when i didn't know a lot i'm telling you right now we learned a lot and we laughed a lot because we learned a lot like um there were things meetings that we would go to and we wouldn't even know why we were meeting the person but someone told us we had to meet them you know and we were like all right here we go you know but we but we took something away from it and it was another person that we could tell our idea to. Um, and I also think don't be scared. Don't be scared to share your idea with other people. Because I really think that holds people back in a, in a negative way, not in a good way. Um, uh, because, you know, there's a way to tell people your idea without giving, up, giving away the special sauce, sauce formula. You know, you can conceptually give an idea to people and see what they think. Yeah, I think that's key. And I mean, and like you said, even, you know, some people get so hung up on someone copying their product. You know, it's like the brand, it's you two, the founders, there's so much blood, sweat and tears that goes into just creating a business that even sharing your idea with someone, it's not gonna, I think, impact you, at least that's how I feel as well. Right. You're right. It, it, it doesn't. I, I'm, I trust me. You've it lived doesn't. it. <laughs> <laughs> lived it, And I, I see it happening and I see it around me for my friends that are doing it. It's you're way better off sharing it with people and, and, and getting what you need to get to that goal, I think. And, and that's critical. And I think that's just such helpful advice. So I appreciate you sharing that. And I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does wealth mean to you? I think about, you know, I think about that with success, I guess success, yeah. success and wealth are, are usually used um, in one way only, which wealth people think of money and success people think of money. Right. And um, for me, I think you're successful if you're happy um, I feel wealthy in my happiness and my health and the people around me. Um, if that, if that, and I think about success, we talk about success a lot with our kids, um, and wealth too, frankly, like I think it's, and again, I, I did my business journey and all of my businesses, not with money at the end of the, not, it was never, it was more of a exciting and a challenge than, than it was about, Ooh, I'm going to be, you know like swimming in money or whatever, you know, and I think that's when people lose sight of what they're passionate about, you know, and, and, and sadly we all, I, of course I needed to make money and of course I, I need to pay my bills, but, but that was never the driver. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was more me being able to make my own decisions and being able to do exactly what I wanted to do. I'm a little selfish like that. I didn't want to listen to anybody else. I'm a little stubborn, I should say, yeah. stubborn. And I, I think I had ideas that I wanted, I had ideas and things I wanted to do that I wasn't going to be able to do under someone else's device. So like someone else being in charge of that wouldn't have led me to do that. So. Well, thank you, Lindsay, so much for taking the time to be on our podcast and share your incredible story. I had such a fun time. That's so nice chatting with you. I love telling my story. I hope it helps other people. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.